the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, coffee and cigarettes make a comeback when it is discovered that bad health and cancer get you kicked out of the alien slaver ships that have arrived in Siberia. Ebook discounts and hardcovers galore, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Eric Flint and Griffin Barber this time on 1637, The Peacock Throne. This is a new book in the Ring of Fire alternate history series. This one is set in 1600s India, where the various Mughal dynasties are fighting it out to see who will occupy the Peacock Throne. And, of course, the uptimers from West Virginia have gotten involved since they are on a mission to the east to acquire trade goods and most especially opium to ensure a supply of modern morphine and bring on the birth of modern medicine three centuries early. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, it's the May Rubies and Rust Catherine Asaro ebook sale. To celebrate the mass market paperback publication of Catherine Asaro's The Vanished Seas, Bain eBooks has major discounts on all eBooks by Catherine Asaro. The Vanished Seas is the third book in Catherine Asaro's excellent science fiction and mystery series, featuring the tough Major Bajan, who hails from the deepest of planetary ghettos, but whose investigation into wrongdoings frequently shakes the highest levels of intergalactic empire. During May, get $2 off the ebook of The Vanished Seas and get $1 off all other Catherine Asaro ebooks, including The Bronze Skies, Undercity, these are part of the Major Bajan series, plus dollar discounts on Sunrise Alley, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. These are available wherever Bain ebooks are distributed. Sale ends May 31st, 2021, at the crack of June. And the May hardcovers are here. First is 1637, The Peacock Throne by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. The diplomatic and trade mission from the United States of Europe came to the Mughal Empire to trade for goods and medicine, but now they are enmeshed in the great civil war of India's magnificent past. And out in May is Freehold Defiance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. The UN has invaded the freehold of grain, a bastion of libertarian government in a galaxy of authoritarianism. Grania must form an organized force from the shattered remnants of their military and from grimly determined insurgents. Their war is for their very way of life. And finally in May is The Girdle Operation by James L. Cambius. An AI must help his favorite human navigate his complex love life while aiding in the search for an ancient legendary weapon that could spell doom for men, machines, and the solar system itself. The Girdle Operation by James L. Cambius. Freehold Defiance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson, and 1637, The Peacock Throne, by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber, are available at booksellers everywhere.
want to welcome Eric Flint and Griffin Barber to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hello. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with more than 3 million books in print. He's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with uh, 1632 and now a million more uh, uh, entries in that series. With David Drake, he wrote... Um, the six popular six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series that is Eastern Roman Empire stuff. And with David Weber, he has collaborated on 1633 and uh, 1634, the Baltic War, and that Honorverse series, Cauldron of Ghosts, and uh, it's called Crown of Slaves, right? Um, Crown of Crown of Slaves. Yeah. And the latest entry in that is going to be out next fall, which is going to be called um, To End in Fire, correct? Mm-hmm. And that is on the way. That's the next entry after um, uh, it, it's after Cauldron of Ghost, right? It's a direct sequel to Cauldron of Ghost, but it also, to some degree, serves to some degree serves as a sequel to David's Uncompromising Honor. But mostly, it's a those yeah. two, the, the the what was originally in Crown of Slaves a pretty separate storyline has gotten very close to the main one by now and it's kind of hard to separate them out. So to some degree, what's going to happen in the end in fire will lay the basis for what David will then do with the Honor Harrington main yeah. line. So uh, this is this this novel that's coming out in fault is on the cutting edge of the honorverse. It is the next thing that actually happens. It's not happening yeah, at the same yeah, time as anything. Yeah, it is. It's um it, it's been um it challenged to write it because in times past, um I normally do the first drafts, and in times past I was working behind David in terms of the setting was already created. I you know. I then had to write, but here I'm sort of moving ahead, and that has required quite a bit of rethinking, rewriting, working through. Um, right now, David's taking over the manuscript as of uh, a few days ago, and he's now working on it alone for a little while, um, so he can do what he wants to do in the next stage, and then I'll come back in again. Um, Good because we need it pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. But this is look, I, I, David Weber and Eric Flint being under deadline pressure is is the first time it's happened. Uh, well, I'm not uh, worried about it. Well, we'll get it. I mean, we yeah, I'm sure. Get it. I mean, it's it's the thing about it that's kind of a nuisance for me is that. For this is the first time I've been under deadline pressure for four years, and I was under deadline pressure most of my career. But but somehow, what happened was in ninth in twenty seventeen, the, the year I turned seventy, I published six new novels. I don't ask me how I did that. The best I'd ever done prior to that was four. And and well, I got a kick out of that. Though. I was like, you know, I was seventy years old. I'm like, take that, you whippersnappers. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that kind of put me ahead, you know? And so since then, I'm still writing just as much, but I just, you know, I just haven't been under deadline pressure until this book here. And, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. 
Okay, I'm not worried. So, and we'll talk about it when it comes out. Um, well, let me talk to Griffin Barber. He spent his oh, uh, Eric. By the way, was for many years a labor union union activist, and he lives in East Chicago, um, Indiana, uh, which is near Chicago, Illinois. Uh, right across really, the pretty the part of Chicago over there near Gary. That exactly. Yeah. Steel mills are all here. And, and I remember many, many years ago, I drove through Gary. And I remember last at night, and I looked out a piece of enormous smokestacks and flames going up. And, yeah, no, and I remember I thinking, who in the right mind would live here? Uh, <laughs> and now I know. Uh, excuse me. I, I can't turn that damn thing off. So oh, That's okay. Let's let it finish, though. <laughs> no, it's annoying. I, I wish I could, but this is the one phone I can't because uh, the landline down there. Um, all right. All right. Well, um, yeah, I uh, I actually have relatives in Gary, and so I've been there um, a few to the one. Some of the coolies moved up there um, from Tennessee. They were coal miners, a coal miner clan who moved up there, and they went to work in the mills. Um, Griffin Barber spent his youth in four different countries, learning three languages and burning all his bridges. He finally settled in Northern California with a day job as a police officer in a major metropolitan department. He lives the good life with his lovely wife, crazy smart daughter, needy dog, and indifferent cat. He is the author with Eric Flint of uh, 1636 Mission to the Muggles. And, uh, Muggles. Muggles. <laughs> okay. And um, Muggles is a little too close to the uh, Harry Potter's. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't want to get sued. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to get confused. <laughs> with, uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. That was the, you know, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing a guy who had, who had worked at U.S. Um, SOCOM, the, uh, the military command. And I said, and he worked at U.S. SOCOM? What is that? <laughs> so anyway. Every once in a while, I have no idea what something says. All right, Mughals. Anyway, then that 1636 Mission of the Mughals was um, the uh, the prequel to this book, which is um, 1637, The Peacock Throne by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. And it's now at booksellers everywhere. Um, so since it is a, a follow-up to, um, to the other one, where are we in the story? Um, Something dramatic happened at the end of the last one, and so and we're we're reaping the consequences in this one. Can uh, can one of y'all sort of set up our our starting point? Yeah. That, um, so in 2017, one of those five novels that Eric put out it was Mission to the Mughals in 2017. Um, at, yeah. Okay. It might have been 16, but I'm pretty sure it's 17. Oh no, it wouldn't have been 16. It, it, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So uh, when it came out, at the end of it, uh, there's a, a killing and the, uh, uh, the throne, the peacock throne, which hasn't yet been constructed until this novel, uh, is up for grabs amongst his uh, three adult sons and two adult daughters, barely adult uh, and really not adult by our measure. But uh, the 15 and ups basically are, uh, are going for it. Uh, to try and you know, secure the peacock throne. 
Um, we have the return of the major characters from the mission of the Mughals, which is the Imperial family, um, including some of the extended family, their servants, uh, and the uptimers uh, who are trying to survive uh, in this uh, uh, different environment for them. And uh, they have pretty much thrown in their lot with one side, uh, that being of our main protagonist and one of my favorite characters to, to write, Jahanara Begum. Uh, the eldest uh, child of Jahan, Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal uh, that built the uh, Taj Mahal. So tell us about the historical background that we're in here. Um, these are these are Muslims, um, and yeah. India is controlled by these these sort of satraps, right? Explain what's going on, and and we're we're here like you know historic structures like the Taj Mahal and Red Fort and. The Mughals are a very interesting dynasty. They originated, they actually originate from Genghis Khan, if you track it back. All of these things, Tamerlane traced his history back. I mean, there's some fudging as to how much actual genealogy was there, but that is the claim. And and uh, by this point, well, the, the Babur the Tiger was the founder of the Mughal dynasty, and he's the one who conquered northern India from Persia. And by then they were Muslims. And both in his policy, and then I believe his grandson is called Akbar the Great, who's considered the sort of greatest of Mughal um, emperors. They followed a policy of religious toleration. Um, and um, they were Muslims. Um, they, you know, they favored Muslims, but there was no persecution of other religions. And in fact, they were very careful to stay on very good relations, particularly with the Rajputs, uh, who are Hindus. And uh, I, I use the Rajputs a lot in the Belisario series. They were a really powerful kind of a warrior caste. Um, um, they were very definitely Hindu, though they were not Muslim, never were. Um, and it was a tr it was very common for Mughal emperors to marry Hindu princesses who were typically Rajput. Um, and so that was a policy they followed very carefully to keep, uh, um, you know, to keep the peace in this enormous society in terms of its population. It was one of the biggest and richest and most powerful empires in the whole world and with a huge population and a heterogeneous population. You had Muslims, you had Hindus, you had Jains, you had, you know, Buddhists, there weren't really any Buddhists left, you had Sikhs. Um, and the Mughals sort of kept the peace until the uh, a Mughal prince named Aurangzeb became the emperor. He was one of the sons of Shah Jahan. Um, the third oldest, and he's a teenager when we start the story. And Aurangzeb, in history, was one of the great emperors of the Mughal dynasty, whatever you think of him, and he ruled for decades, had an enormous impact on him, but he was, he was religiously intolerant and, and insisted on imposing a kind of rigid Muslim rule. Um, so one of the things in our series we're trying, our heroes are are trying to avoid is have him wind up in power, which is what happened in the real world. But our heroes, our American heroes are supporting the oldest son, Darashiko, 
the central character, though, of the books um, is actually not an upcomers, as we call them. It, it's a person of the time, and it's the oldest daughter of, of Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan was one of the major emperors in the Mughals. He, he's today mostly famous because he built the, the uh, Taj Mahal. Um, as a monument to his, his wife, who, who died and we loved dearly. But he was a major emperor in all kinds of ways. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just simply built the Taj Mahal. And, and we, this is sort of a spoiler, but it's a book's been out for four, four years, so to hell with it. Uh, at the end of Lucian and Lugos, we have him assassinated. That's the big change in history that happens. And so, the thing about the Mughals is like the Ottomans, they did, and actually like a lot of kingdoms. The truth is Europe was kind of unusual and that it had a pretty rigid established set basis of inheritance of, of dynasties where it was essentially primogeniture, the oldest child. In some societies had to be a son, others it could be their son or daughter, but the oldest child always inherited. And then if they weren't available, it would go down the list. That tradition did not exist in, in Mughal India. It did not exist among the Ottomans. It did not exist, I'm working with Griffin, a different book that takes place in Central Africa, did not exist among the Kingdom of Congo. It was just kind of when the emperor dies, everybody fights it out, see who's going to succeed him, uh, and which is what the Mongols did too although they would tend to do it kind of peacefully. But so everything's up for grabs at the start of um, the Peacock Throne. And what's depicted, part of what's depicted in the novel is the unfolding civil war between the three brothers. There are actually four brothers, but the fourth one, uh, Murad, is like, how old is he? Ten years old, I think. Okay. Yep. So he's just not involved in it. And there are three daughters. The youngest is like eight years old. And the two oldest are Jahanara and Roshana. Um, Roshana. Roshana, yeah. Um, and the central characters, other than the American characters who come in and out, are Jahanara and a character that Griff introduced into the first book. Uh, uh, whom I will call Salim. His real, his full name goes on and on and on. Uh, like five different names. But Salim is an Afghan, kind of an Afghan adventurer, um, and he winds up getting involved in the whole middle of this. And one of the things that developed that sort of was hinted at in Mission of the Mughals, but goes further than a hint in this book is a romantic relationship starts developing between him and Jahanara, the oldest and by far most powerful princess in the Mughal dynasty. And this is a real no-no. I mean, you know, that this is, this is the kind of thing gets you trampled by elephants. Um, uh, and so, because she is, she's a, a pawn, no, not a pawn, but she's a important piece in this game. Of, of yeah, history. she is, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's one yeah. of seven princes and princesses of the empire. And, and the Mughals, starting with, I think it was Jahangir, passed a, a rule, basically, that, that Mughal princesses could not get married. 
And the reason is because they didn't want to deal with the goddamn son-in-laws. They had enough trouble dealing with sons. They didn't want to have the damn son-in-laws sticking their nose into the Civil War. Too. Yeah, they did not want to dilute the, the potential for the pool of uh, inheritors so that everybody... law that would not be acceptable to them so they they certainly limited the uh, amount of people that could uh, uh, try and put themselves forward and that's part of what happened after Aurangzeb uh, passed away in 1712 he had lived a very good long life and that's uh, part of the reason why the empire kind of broke up and uh, beside from the pressure from the English was that he lived too long and his sons didn't inherit and his grandsons were uh, didn't inherit. And then his great grandsons were too young to really kind of ex assert themselves as, uh, as emperor. And so they had to rely on, uh, and the ones who won were a pair of Afghan adventurers uh, that ended up trying to uh, basically dividing the empire and, and uh, divide and conquer kind of manner. So it's uh, the, the Lodi, uh, uh, satrapy that went on before the Mughals in, uh, invaded, there were a number of different independent Mughal, uh, excuse me, not Mughal, Afghan-led Indian states in northern Africa, uh, northern India, that were um, uh, the the people that basically that uh, Babur knocked off in order to to rule, um, and they were all inheritors of the Indian Empire. Uh, and I always mispronounce this, Bajinagar or something like that. It's uh, it's very long and, and I, I just can't seem to wrap my head around it. Bajinagar, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, which was a very old empire um, and very powerful, but uh, they had the Afghans had already invaded and, and kind of knocked it to pieces. So there's a lot of really rich, diverse history going on to, to use as our backdrop for this yeah. story. So Daha, um, Janara is the sister of of several of the guys, but her favorite brother, the one that she is supporting is Dara. Uh, Shiko. Yes, Dara Shiko. He's the oldest of the brothers, yeah. Yeah, and, and really, um, and, and he's had a lick on the head that's left him a little addled. And uh, in, in some ways, it's really sort of Jahanara who is the, the power here, and she's, she's certainly the most forceful even though I guess it's the men that are going to rule in this, this day and age that we're talking about. But, but John R has got, you know. The, yes. Yeah. The, the thing that is that Griff and I wanted to get across, I think we succeeded quite well in these books, is you've got our central character, heroine, on the one hand, lives a very constructive, life. I mean, she's, you know, it, 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 women were, you know, isolated. She has to pretty much stay in the harem. Um, um, although one of the things we try to do is depict that, that people's image of what harem life is, is that one of the things these women do is play polo. I mean, you know, polo on horseback, um, you know. Uh, so it's not like they're not. The it, for the polo match. Huh? Book open. Yeah, the book opens with a polo match. And, and we just wanted to get across people. Look, get rid of any stereotypes you have in your mind about what Muslim princesses, immensely powerful in all kinds of ways, but who do have to live in Purda, in, in seclusion, 
in a harem, it's a complicated situation. On one hand, there are very sharp restrictions on what they can do. And on the other hand, they are also, if they're capable, and Jahanara is really capable. They are immensely powerful. And one other character we have is her... I'm trying to think what relationship Noor Jahan was. I think her, her aunt. She's her, she's her great aunt and her uh, step-grandmother. Right. And Noor Jahan was the, was the last and most influential wife of the Emperor Jahangir, who was the father of Shah Jahan. And she's a woman now about 60. And, and in her heyday, she's famous in Indian history because um, she basically wielded power kind of like an empress in her own right, even though just like Jahanara, she had to stay in the harem and, you know, but um, it's just a fascinating challenge to be able to portray to, to readers. Yes, there are all kinds of restrictions and limitations and, 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 you know, to put it mildly, it's a very sexist kind of setup, but, this is not a stereotype either, um, um, because these these women, especially the ones who are capable, Jahanar and Nur Jahan are both immensely capable. They are really powerful. And one of the things that by the end of this book, The Peacock Throne, our American characters sort of figure out is that they wish that Jahanara was the emperor of the, you know, because she'd be better than any of these goddamn brothers of hers. Um, yeah. But that's precluded because of, of her position. Um, but in practice, she wields an enormous amount of power. And then there's a complexity that I don't think we can get too far into because it'd be a big spoiler. But, but something, a twist happens in the course of this book that makes it necessary for Jahanara to get um, to leave for a while. Um, so at the end of the book, she goes on a hajj. She goes on the, uh, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. And it's funny because Griff and I had planned a different sequel to this. We do have a sequel to this, by the way. Uh, we did have a contract. Um, yes. But we had planned on going in one direction. And because of the way the book ended up, we realized, no, this is going to go in a very different direction. And it's going to we're going to deal a lot with the Hajj and what happens in Mecca and, 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 and all kinds of stuff. And um, I got to say, this is a really fun story to work with. It, it honestly is. And uh, uh, we, we really enjoy these characters we're working with. Cool. Well, it's got, I mean, it's got a bunch of strong women characters. In fact, um, I mean, the, part of the way you portray this and, and give us insight into this life is, the is the uptimer characters um and and priscilla um she's she's pretty she's kind of the centerpiece of that group as far as point of view that you use a lot yeah. <laughs> goes um why are they here in the first place and what are they after and um so i mean in the in the mainline story for those that don't know there's there's a town in west virginia that got thrown back into uh, time and ended up in Central Europe in what will become Germany in uh, 1632. So we're, what, five years ahead of that now. And um, they've come here from 
the what 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 has become the United States of Europe, and what are they yeah. after? What are they doing? Well, the 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 further incidents that are going on is you know a, a long wave of of uh, like you throw a stone in the pond, everything becomes uh, complex and changes along that wave front. And uh, one of the things that's happened is it sparked a bunch of wars that were either already happening or simmering or that kind of thing. So the mission is set and sent out by the USE to, to gather uh, uh, saltpeter and more importantly, uh, opium uh, so that they can make painkillers for the soldiers uh, that will be uh, uh, injured in these wars and continue to be injured in all these wars that have basically gone on. I don't think they've had a year of peace uh, yet. It's just a town that came back, right? And so they don't really have the ability to manufacture modern pharmaceuticals. Exactly. And if they if they could bootstrap it, would you want to put all those resources toward that or towards making bullets or making some other, you know, uh, it's also, yeah, it's also, you know, it's one thing to have the knowledge. It's another thing to have the technology and the tools to make the tools to make the tools. And so, for instance, in terms of, of medicine, the first antibiotic that, that they use, that they introduce, is one that most people never heard of. It's called chloramphenicol. And it's fallen out of use, but it was the first um, powerful antibiotic developed. And it's, it's, it's not natural. It's an artificial antibiotic. And the reason that we don't use it anymore, it's quite effective. Uh, is because it does have some fatal side effects. And they only affect like one in 50,000 people. But in today's world, that's too risky. But in a world that's got the bubonic plague in it, which this <laughs> medicine will deal with, it's like one in 50,000. We can live with that. But uh, creating painkillers is difficult. And so one of the things they want to do is, you know, get opium because then they can make morphine, which is the simplest, you know, I mean, one of the things. So there's a lot of things that you can make, but it's, it's, it, but it would, as, as Griff said, it'd be kind of, you can only make so much. And do you really want to make some or can you find something you can, somebody else is making and you can ship in? That's, so the reason the um, the expedition originally goes there is basically to get, and there's a few other things they're looking for, but part of what they're being sent there for, which initially is kind of a fairly minor part of it, is just to find out what the hell's going on in India. And what happens, and, and uh, the same thing in a very different way happens in a book I wrote with Ivor Cooper called The China Venture, where an expedition is sent to China similar kind of thing, looking for various resources. But what happens when you send these expeditions is they just start getting involved in things. Um, and so by the time we get to the end of Peacock Throne, two books into this India adventure, uh, a number of the Americans are coming back at the end of the book. They are returning. They're done. And they're returning to... Uh, to Europe, but some are going to stay. And their reasons for staying, in the case of Priscilla and her husband, Rodney, by now Rodney's a made a general in the Mughal army, and Priscilla is their chief medical officer. And, and in a different way, other characters are playing a major role um, 
I, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up John and Ilsa. Never mind. But I mean, the point is, these things take on a life of their own. And at this point, our, some of our American heroes don't want to go back. I mean, they're, they're too closely involved in what's happening in India. Yeah, well, and for one, they've kind of got the tiger by the tail. And now yeah. they're, they're making this, they're having this huge impact that these guys from West Virginia, you know, this tiny mining town in West Virginia would have never thought to have. And they can actually change the course of not only like the, the, the history that they have, but the history that they are living, like they can actually have an effect on that, which is, you know, to me would be enormous, uh, both the responsibility and just like, you know, wow, I can really, I, I, I matter. I matter this much, you know, uh, would be really kind of uh, eye-opening and, and is a cool motivating factor for some of these characters uh, yeah. well, to, to kind of go forward. And Priscilla is what well, she's a medic and she knows a bunch about. Yeah. The, yeah. I for, um, Griff, I've forgotten her specific training. Was she a nurse? Paramedic. She was a paramedic. paramedic yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's uh, her and Rodney both were paramedic trained. And that's one of the things that they kind of joke about is, is that like, we're not really doctors, but our level of training as far as effective wound treatment, that kind of stuff is so much better than uh, the, as far as the eventual outcomes uh, than the average uh, downtimer uh, that it's, you know, they're put in charge. And that's the thing about Jahanara too. She identifies talent and she identifies skill and puts it into play uh, as a leader. Uh, it's really kind of neat to be able to play with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I, I it's it's a line I think I wrote in a different one one of these books was a different one, but it was um, um, somebody said something about um, referred to um, I think it was Sharon Nichols, uh, who's one of the major characters of the series, whose father's a doctor. She was trained as a nurse. And somebody refers to her as a doctor and somebody says, well, she's a nurse, you know, and, and the person says, yeah. And uh, unlike uh, 17th century doctors, she cannot recite at great length in Greek and Latin the writings of Aristotle on, on medicine. But if you got to have something taken care of, I really suggest you go talk to her and and not one of these learned fellows uh, is going to bleed you. Dust your humors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so, um, well, Priscilla's um, has sewn up um, the uh, the the head of security for John R's harem. Right? Is that yes? Um, yeah. Beginning of the book, and and um, basically say this this incredible warrior's life um well yeah. and the other thing is if, if those figures behind griff in, in the cover mm -hmm. these are are well the guy in the middle is an american but the two on either side these are uh, there were women warriors um, that the Mughal princes had as bodyguards, and uh, they were were they Afghan? I think they were. No, well, they were drawn from they were drawn from everywhere. There was an Armenian uh, that's mentioned, uh, which uh, the Armenian Turkic warrior tribes, um, basically the they they were uh, hired on as guards for the uh, 
for the harem, not necessarily for the princesses, but for the harem. Yeah, they so, always they would not be a danger to um to to make use of the harem and get the harem pregnant. I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They were safer. They were safer than the the even the eunuchs, and they were less expensive. Uh, for the uh, harem security, and they uh, could be trusted within certain parameters far more than uh, anybody else. So there's concentric rings of uh, security around the harem, and uh, that is certainly the most, the innermost uh, security for that. Yeah, there was, it's a tradition goes way, way back. I ran into it originally in the uh, Belisari series. And the tradition goes back to a tribe known as the Sarmatians uh, from Central Asia, who by, by legend, how much of this is true, nobody's ever really quite been able to figure out. But the legend is that they had, you know, Amazons, that they had women warriors, and that it sort of continued on. Um, but there's enough of it that, that, I mean, we didn't make this up. This is, uh, you know, these ladies. That was in, in 52, 1652 or so, uh, Aurangzeb had already defeated his brothers in battle repeatedly. And, uh, but Shah Jahan, uh, was trying to broker a peace and invited, um, uh, his sons to come and visit with him and uh, negotiate a peace to settle the, the war, which had dragged on for quite some time, but Aurangzeb always beat everybody. And Aurangzeb uh, said and entertained this, you know, in front of his advisors, he said, you know, I'm being invited into, the, into uh, Shah Jahan's uh, harem to discuss uh, peace. And all of his advisors uniformly said, don't do it. He'll set his women upon you and they will kill you. And he didn't do it because of that advice. So it, clearly they were a threat. Like it wasn't any kind of joke that they were, you know, these were not warriors that they had to worry about. And so we kind of took that. One of the nice things, uh, you know, about uh, working within this harem stuff is that we, all, we have a lot of European uh, opinion on it, which is mostly salacious. You know, they, they concentrated on that kind of thing. Um, but then we also have just just these little tidbits, these little insights, and you can extrapolate from there. Uh, but because uh, only the princesses wrote about what it was like inside the harem uh, and no one else did, everyone else kind of rumor mongered or you know, said they were there and watched when they were obviously weren't. Uh, there's a lot of room to, to play around with that and uh, speak about that. So there's there's a, a few scholarly things that have gone on within the uh, study of the harems. Um, but yeah, there was a, a lot of room to play with uh, how that relationship would work. And the, one of the things that we did and consciously did was, is that, well, you know, we have this inherently misogynistic system in place that, you know, is, it, this could be a real slog if we only focused on that aspect of it. Uh, but people are people no matter where you put them and they are going to find, figure out ways to uh, uh, overcome, enhance and uh, improve their lives in any circumstance. So being able to do that with these characters was a lot of fun. And also given enough stress, any system will start to show its cracks and those cracks for a sufficiently uh, intelligent and motivated individual are opportunities. Uh, for change. So we wanted to make sure we kind of did that as well. 
Yeah. Well, you have, um, I mean, and, and I mean, clearly harem life is, uh, is, is complex. Uh, you have, for instance, Dara's, um, wife, uh, begging him to marry some more women so that, you know, because, you know, it, it, it for one thing, it will secure her place as first wife. Right. And, and also she just, she, for his own strength to to form alliances, right? And yeah, to secure secure his throne. And that, from harem, but still, the it's yeah. this sort of like get with some other women, man. That's, that's well, I mean, and that's that's literally the purpose of it was to you know to protect his wives from other men's eyes and touch. But the the key was is that it was those political alliances made by marriage were. Uh, essential um, or viewed as essential by the previous uh, kings and emperors of, of India. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal that he's not. Um, and for the motivation that he has for not doing, it's kind of unclear. But, uh, you know, Jahanara is like, okay, well, and, and it poses problems for Jahanara too, because she's viewed as being kind of usurping the mandate that Nadira should hold. Uh, Nadira as first wife and his only wife should be the one who's in charge of uh, all of the court of the harem. And she's, she's not because Jahanara has got her hand in there, but with N Nadira's blessing, because Nadira is like, I, I can recognize my talents and your talents are a lot greater than mine or my husband's. <laughs> so please make sure you take care of business. Because if, if this group loses their, they're going to be dead. <laughs> and their children are dead too. That's the other thing is that yeah, recognizes I mean, that they're playing for very, very high stakes. Um, um, and it's a very, um, it's an unforgiving environment. It's not as bad historically as the Ottoman Turk tradition where um, that was really rough as far as the successions went. Um, they had the same kind of issues among the Mughal Indians, but um, the Ottomans, the problem with the Ottoman tradition is the sultans didn't get married. Um, they, their wives, were, their, their women were slave women. And once one of them had a child, she was then secluded. She'd have one child and that would be it um, because they didn't want to build up too much power and influence on the part of any one woman. But what the problem was that you wound up with a whole bunch of princes whose mothers were all slaves. They weren't, it, it, uh, they didn't have the kind of stature or status that, that, uh, that, that princes have in the Mughal Empire. So the Ottomans, Jesus, whenever, I mean, whenever there had to be a succession, there was going to be a civil war. I mean, it was just the way it was, you know, and, and the brothers were, the brothers were going to basically fight it out until there was one of them left. Um, and I had never really realized until I, we started doing the research on this, just because you tend to think of the European system as kind of what everybody does, but it's actually not true. The Europeans, I don't know where they developed it, but they developed very early on the system of primogeniture, which is it's a very clear rules and everybody follows it, that the oldest son of the king becomes the new king. And if there's no son, then the oldest daughter, although the French had the Salic law where it had to be a man, it couldn't be a woman. But, but still, 
it was basically the oldest child. And then you would go down through the list if the oldest died, it wasn't available. And then if you ran out of kids, then you'd go to the oldest brother and then you go yeah. for his children. But there were definite clear set rules, which meant that even the Europeans had a jillion succession crises. I mean, there's the war of the Austrian succession and the war of the Spanish succession. You know, I mean, even in Europe, successions tended to get rocky, but it was nothing compared to what it was like in um, uh, among the Indians um, and, and among the Ottoman Turks. Uh, and then one, one of the things that Griffin and I discovered, I hadn't known that because we we're doing this book that set Central Africa, Central African kingdoms were the same way. It was, you know, actually they were even more complicated because they didn't, yeah. they didn't actually have clear dynasties. They had these lineages, these houses that would compete with each other. So it was a little bit more like the situation of the Venetian oligarchy, but but yeah, it's in fact one of the things that happened in Africa is that the Congolese would send um, would send envoys to the papacy because they were all they had converted to Catholicism and they tried to get the Pope to establish primogeniture as the rule in Congo and the Pope wouldn't do it basically because from the European point of view, it was to their advantage, really, to have... Yeah, well, it was the, it was kind of the Portuguese, you know, it was to the yeah, Portuguese the advantage Portuguese to be able to pick it up. Yeah. This kind of chaos, so they didn't want to have... Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with Islamic inheritance law uh, is, uh, you know, and uh, juridic uh, precedence within that is the part of the reason why there's no primogeniture. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of mind-bending for most of us. But the one thing that the Mughals did different than the Ottomans was every son that reached adulthood uh, or left the harem was given greater and greater responsibility uh, and, you know, governorships and, and that kind of thing as they went along and they were able to recruit their own people. They were given a salary out of the uh, government uh, fund. Um, and they were with that, with that salary, they were supposed to pay their own people. And so they were able to, uh, if somebody was in opposition to the, to the emperor, they were able to kind of sub subvert that opposition to the emperor into uh, support for the royal family by saying, hey, come work for me. And they did this repeatedly against the Rajputs and, and that kind of thing was they would, uh, and the Sikhs as well, eventually, uh, they would go ahead and, you know, the emperor would be at war with them. They'd get conquered. They'd be kind of restive and resistant. And the prince would be like, hey, guys, I'd really like you on my staff and I'll pay you a boatload of money uh, to be on my staff and help me out in ruling your area or maybe some other area of the empire. And we'll get along just snazzy. And when I become emperor, you'll be my right hand man. So they constantly refreshed the, both the pool of talent around the princes, but also the princes themselves were being trained how to rule and how to, uh, you know, not necessarily play favorites, but certainly gather the best talent around them because they knew that eventually they were going to have to go to war against the others. And that's one of the things in the Peacock Throne that really comes home to roost is that uh, in Mission to the Mughals, Darashiko lost his best talent. Like all the people that he had, he had gotten around him that had grown up with him, his milk brothers is what they're called because they were raised by the same wet nurses uh, in the harem 
the, these guys that were really, really loyal to him, they all got smoked by the, the Sikhs. So uh, in the battle and the mission of the Mughals. So now he's kind of having to rebuild and he's got this uh, TBI that he accrued at the end of the mission as well. Um, spoiler alerts, folks. Sorry, it's been four years. You can you know, <laughs> deal with it. But uh, so he's got a bunch. He has a, a long slope to kind of go up. And Jahanara is uh, because she's in such close proximity with him and knows his mind generally uh, to be very liberal relative to his younger brother's much more uh, a, uh, a supporter of uh, uh, other religions than Islam, uh, even sects within Islam, uh, not just Sunni and Shia, but also the dervishes and all the different groups that uh, sprang up in India in that contact zone between uh, uh, Indian Hinduism, Sikhism, uh, Jainism, all the all these other religions that uh, sprang out of India, um, they were able to uh, kind of synergistically rule them uh, and yet and get the best talent. Because again, if you're talking about somebody who comes in, it's a little bit like the Romans, but it's, it's actually a better system than the Romans in as much as people have much more buy-in when your, uh, your individual leaders, after they got beat up, they're put back on their feet and they're told, Hey, you're going to work with this kid of mine and you're going to be the next generation. It may not happen now, but you're going to be the next generation of rulers. It's like, well, why wouldn't I buy into that? Especially with the technology and, and stuff that they had. Yeah. That's one of the funnest things about this was in, in combining it with the 1632 universe was going to say the emperor, you know, in the mission of the Mughals, they go to Shah Jahan and they go, Hey, we've got all these wonders. And he's like, I don't need your wonders. Uh, we, we got plenty of people doing those jobs and you'll put them out of work. Uh, that would destabilize my empire. Why would I want that? <laughs> and then uh, in this one, in the Peacock Throne, we have, uh, they're not to spoil things, but they're given a, an example, an exemplar of something and they mass produce it in a shockingly short amount of time. I mean, we should talk about this because this is the, it's very important in the book. And, and we learned pretty early on um, that, uh, it, and what it is is guns, right? Yes. Um, and so it, it is something the uptimers have with them. And it's something that they, you know, it's what makes them pretty powerful as an ally, right? Um, and uh, unless your entire gunpowder factory blows up. Right. Uh, or seems to. And that's the, yeah. So they, the, uh, the thing about it too, is that they're not lugging around crates of guns. They bring an exemplar. It's actually a, uh, my brother and I have uh, my great grandfather's shotguns. Um, we have a paired match, a, a matched pair of them. He's got one. I have the other. And uh, I was like, you know, this wouldn't be one of the things that these uptimers would have brought with them to use in combat but it would certainly be something they would use as a fouling piece while they're in, in India, they would go out and, and probably use it. So, uh, you know, I, I, they give this exemplar to uh, the Atishbaz, the, uh, the cast that is involved in uh, gunsmithing and uh, Talawat, they give it to him and, or he asks for it. And he's looking at the semi-automatic 45s and all this other stuff. And it's like, that's all well and good, but, he focuses in on this LC Smith shotgun uh, and how he can make something. And uh, mentioned it earlier before we started recording, but Rick Boatwright is not only uh, a good IT guy uh, for Eric, he's also uh, 
a college uh, or uh, high school level chemistry and, and science teacher. So he's been able to explain to me how to, uh, he was explaining to me how we could do this and that kind of thing. I consulted with a couple of gunsmith friends of mine uh, and uh, you know, would it be feasible, that kind of thing. And uh, also with some special operators uh, that, uh, you know, indicated that yes, the, the apocryphal story of the Afghans making AK-47s is actually true. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, they can actually do that now. Um, so it certainly would be easy for them to copy a break, you know, double action, a double barrel break shotgun from the early uh, or the late 19th century. They would certainly be able to copy that very, very quickly. The stalling point of the difficulty would be ammunition. So, um, and yes, the ammunition plant and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of fun to be had with that. One of the things that that I found that I'm not sure about Europeans, but Americans um, often don't know a lot of history and they make assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that Europeans develop gunpowder and gunpowder weapons. And it actually migrated into Europe through Central Asia. So these people have been working with guns for mm-hmm. a long, long time. And um, especially cannons. And you know, I mean, gunpowder warfare been around for a long time before our story starts. It's just what the timers bring is, you know, where they people like this character that Chris talked about can see in their hands. Okay, I see what they're doing here, and but they already had the skill levels to, to do stuff. I mean, it's yeah. not like it's not like you had to teach them everything by any means. Um, in fact, there's one uh, there's one part in the book where I forgot. Griff, you wrote this part, but it's where the um, I think it's Adisha just kind of somewhat huffily says, "We know how to make guns. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, butt uh, <laughs> out. Uh, you know, and uh, we've been making them for oh many generations now. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, yeah. And." Uh, uh, I really love working in this series. Yeah, uh, uh, the but, 17th century is just, um, you know, it's funny. Until I started the series, it was not a period of history. I, I knew some about it, but not a whole lot. Um, but since then, um, I've become something of an expert on the whole century, not just in Europe, but all over. And it's yeah. just, God, it's a great period, period. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the the fun thing about that was the those having those conversations because one of the things that that uh, you know this allows us to do is to show that hubris to show that uh, you know we as North Americans or Anglo-Saxon you know European people tend to think we're you know we're on top of things and we've kind of always been but like one of my very first stories was was uh, uh, or my first sale actually to the Granville Gazette was the Swiss and it was a Frenchman talking about those backward English. Cause at the time they were really backward <laughs> uh, relative to the, to the rest of Europe. Yeah. They were considered rubes. Yeah. Uh, literary literacy rates. Everything was just everything. not, not what it was anywhere else. The reason all those guys wanted to get the hell out of there and get over. <laughs> to America, so. yeah, Who sure. wants to live on that little dirt clod riddled island? Well, so, um, 
So, all right. So there's actual complex humans in the past. Yes, we know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> being able to actually write them is something uh, a little different than, than just saying it, isn't it? Yeah. So um, what about uh, the bad guys who are also complex humans and have very different sort of motives? Um, there is uh, Arangzab um, and uh, his folks who are... He was. He, we referred to him so far, and there's an arrayed sort of a, a, a bun, alliance of of traders from Europe who are um, like the English trade traders, as with the D traders, um, Portuguese. There and there's some priests who are trying to tell us a little bit about the the um, the melange of of the bad guys. They're not really bad guys, but they do want to kill our good guys. So, yeah, the antagonists, yes. Certainly. yes. Uh, so the uh, Portuguese Gullah is a thing at this time. Uh, they had, uh, it's the one state that they actually carved out for themselves in uh, the East. Everywhere else, it was just like an enclave or a trading uh, area that they uh, held sway over. I'm, go right. I'll, I'll be right back. Okay. They would... Uh, they would uh, hold on to small areas, but Goa was actually the seat of the uh, Viceroy of India, the Estado of the, the India. Um, so basically he was responsible for everything uh, west of the Cape, uh, the Horn of Africa, um, or the Cape of Africa, I should say. And uh, they were uh, constantly understaffed, uh, especially in the 17th century in this particular era, because the Spanish kind of viewed their, their, the Portuguese empire as their bastard stepchild. Um, they did not allot a lot of resources to it. Um, so they were constantly undermanned. And then the people that showed up uh, to be soldiers were uh, often uh, recruited into the Jesuits or one of the other religious orders upon their arrival in Goa. Um, they had a, a just were leaking so much manpower uh, throughout the entire uh, 17th century, basically, uh, and were suffering as a cause of it. So they hear the, of the events at the end of the mission to the Mughals and decide that it's time to uh, they need to pick a side. They might be able to get some advantage out of picking the right side. Uh, and they uh, start to uh, negotiate. Uh, or approach the different princes, uh, but they kind of settle on Aurangzeb um, as the, the prince they should back because, at, again, at the end of Mission of the Mughals, the two uh, younger brothers had been dispatched into the Deccan to uh, conquer it at the head of really big armies. But the Deccan had been suffering from a decade-long drought and famine, uh, as well as the numerous wars that were going on. And so there's, there's a really heavy logistics chain. So the Portuguese and the English who have been forced out of the Mughal empire proper uh, by Shah Jahan's uh, actions and uh, our responses to certain actions taken against him um, have, uh, because he learned that, you know, what the English did to India in, the, uh, in our the, actual that's capital. Another thing that's very interesting because they've, a lot of the the the, uh, the history and the encyclopedias and the history books have been translated and have gotten there, um, and so some of the main characters know what the history was, yes, is, and they've seen themselves in those histories. 
Yes, and and some of and that's the reason why Shah Jahan ultimately is assassinated in the, at the end of Mission of the Mughals, uh, is because he is trying to change that history. He, he uh, and the people that aren't aware of it just see him trying to uh, undermine Islam uh, in the empire and decide that he's got to go if he's going to do that. Um, the, the zealots that are there. So Aurangzeb is approached by the, basically the Bishop of Goa and the, um, uh, the English, uh, basically the Viceroy and the Bishop of, of Goa, they combine together to bring in the English and then they approach Aurangzeb with uh, offers of logistical support if he favors them when he becomes emperor. And so they send their mission to him with this deal, and eventually something is ironed out. Um, but there's also the Shah Shuja, the middle son, is between and around them. So there's a lot of uh, back and forth uh, with regard to uh, who they should support. And also because of the way that the court is uh, situated, and Aurangzeb being the youngest prince, and being at the farthest extent of the uh, of the logistics train, he's not willing to immediately go. Yeah, sure, no problem. I'll I'll be your emperor. Um, uh, I'll be your guy in India. He has to play it cagey, and uh, there is some impatience amongst the uh, Portuguese, uh, the viceroy, and uh, in particular the religious uh, aspect of it, with this uh, kind of diminishing returns for what they're giving him. He doesn't seem to be making uh, forward a motion in good faith. So uh, there's a lot of pressure there. And it also allows us to give a European context uh, to what's going on in Aurangzeb and Shashuja's camp as they kind of continue north. Uh, while I do, we did have some uh, of Aurangzeb's, um, uh, if we did have a lot of Aurangzeb's thoughts or point of view, I didn't want to do that all the way through. Like it, it was better to have some kind of outsider's viewpoint on what was going on mm -hmm. um, for a lot of the events, because that's a better translation for the reader. So um, often in the ring of fire books, uh, Eric will end up writing the battles is that and Aurangzeb is coming for, um, for uh, Dara and Jahara, uh, Jah, Jahanara, um, it, even at a slow pace <laughs> or at a, at a reflective pace. And he's, he's hearing things. He's got spies and there's all kind of cool, like ciphers in this as well. Um, which, uh, which are, there's all kind of cool spying going on. So how did the battle? All right. So, and, and there's this, the red and, fortress, right? And this yeah, is and, structure. In this book, there's a great big, really big, pitch battle at the end. And actually Griff wrote it. Um, um, he wanted to and I was like, go ahead. Um, and I was very, very pleased with it. Um, battle scenes are not easy to do. Um, people think they are, but they're not. And um, uh, Griff did a great job with it. So I just, I don't I mean, I think I tweaked here or there, did something, but, you know, pretty much it's what he wrote. Um, and it's a big battle. I mean, it goes on. I mean, it's it's a siege with a battle combined with it. But um, 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 
I was very happy with it. I was very pleased with it. I think it's it's uh, it's the strength of the book. And um, and, and like I said, I, I, if I were giving a class to people, I could try to explain to them why people think battles are going to be easy to do and they're not. Um, and um, the, the basic problem people do, and they do with fight scenes too, is they they write them as if they were Howard Cosell announcing a boxing match with this kind of, you know, uh, you know, from the top down, oh yeah, they just picked everything. And it's just, what you want coming out of a battle scene is chaos and it's the emotion of it that grabs a reader. It's not, it's not, and then they went to the left and then they went to the right. I mean, that's not particularly interesting. What, what really grips readers is feeling like they're right smack in the middle of this goddamn thing. And there's a, a big chunk of the battle that Griff wrote where, where the woman warrior, uh, uh, gets separated and she winds up in really hairy place <laughs> but manages to come out of it survive and um um that's the kind of thing that really grips people is where you feel you're right with the characters and and um you don't necessarily have a good sense of the battle as a whole um Parts of it, maybe you'll get a little bit of that, but a lot of it you just don't, especially until toward the end where, you know, one of the generals says, well, I guess we kind of lost this one. Um, and that's that's one of the things about uh, even, you know, all these changes that have been induced in uh, uh, warfare by the uh, occurrence of the uptimers, the, they haven't really uh, uh, enhanced command and control on the tactical level. They've, they've gotten it on the strategic level, but certainly not on the tactical level. And I've been in a lot of fights individually. And I know that it's really hard to know what's going on 10 feet away from you, let alone what's going on 100 yards, 200 yards, a mile, all that kind of thing. So one of the things that you know I, I always try and do in any kind of combat scene that I write, but in particular in battle scenes. And uh, we were talking earlier, I think, before we started recording about uh, uh, your st your work with The Chosen, Tony, and, and uh, uh, that, that kind of stuff. Is, is that one of the things that always gripped me about those was that it was always, there's this macro level of like a commander kind of knowing what's going on or hoping he knows what's going on, trying to feel him out and getting reports and that kind of thing. And then there was always the micro level. It was the guy who was getting shot at. Because right. uh, and that's the human story. The the you know armies clashing is all well and good, but the human story is at the the grunt level, you know. Uh, and you can have that with a general who puts themselves forward and is in the combat themselves. But you're much more likely to have it in guys that are like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> uh, and you know, one of the fun things that we did with this was the uh, the, the Sikhs being there and and uh, Bidi Chan, this this hero of, of uh, the disciples of uh, Sixth Guru Argaban um, <clears throat> Singh. Excuse me. Was he's just like this uh, nut? They're they're looking at him like, man, that guy is just crazy. And they're they're like, well, I'm glad somebody else has got a man crush on him because he's he's also really magnetic and you know like. They're like, wow! Look at a, look at Conan go, 
and that was one of the, the, the things is that I've, I have literally looked across at somebody else who, another officer who was struggling to overcome resistance of a, of a suspect who was incredibly violent and gone, wow, they're just awesome. And, and thinking that, you know, that they, they really have good, good control and they know what they're doing, that kind of thing. And so to the, the weird things you think in combat, yeah, they, they happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was one of the things about this big battle. And, and again, uh, being an admirer of, of uh, Eric's work as well uh, in the Belisarius series and, and uh, with Drake as well, you know, being seated in the characters and giving a damn about what's going on. You have to kind of be in that, that zone where you're telling enough, but you're showing a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always had an interest in the human cost of violence. Um, and I think that we kind of, we kind of cover that uh, to a great extent uh, in this. Uh, and we will continue to do so as the, in the next book that we're yeah. working on. It's a lot of fun. It is 1637, The Peacock Throne by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber. And it's a booksellers everywhere. Uh, Griff and Eric, thank you so much for joining us and talking with us about The Peacock Throne. Thanks for having us. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few No war, the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Duke of Cromarty in hyperspace. Skipper, I realize we're in a hurry, but Her Majesty's going to be really, really pissed if we break the Duke. You do realize that, don't you? And I don't know about you, but I don't like it when Her Majesty is pissed at me. Captain Stephen Firestein looked up from his mug of coffee at Commander Rice. The commander looked back, and his expression showed rather more genuine concern than his tone had. I don't plan on breaking anything, Alex, he said mildly. People don't usually plan on things like that, Rice pointed out. It just sort of happens, especially when you've pulled the governors on the hypergenerator. I seem to remember reading somewhere that that's what you might call a bad idea. I have total confidence in your ability to keep everything on the green. Firestein said, and if it should happen that my confidence is misplaced, the Empress's temper is likely to be the last thing you'll have to worry about. Rice looked remarkably unreassured. Skipper, he said in a much more serious tone, if we pick up a harmonic this high in the theta bands, there's no tomorrow. And we're right on the edge of bouncing off the iota wall. My systems are in good shape, 
but I'd be lying if I said I felt anything like confident about the way we're stressing them. Understood. Firestein took a long, slow sip of coffee, then lowered the cup. Understood, but we're not backing off. Sir, you've made your point, Alex, but we're not backing off. Firestein shook his head. I understand what you're saying, and the truth is, I tend to agree. But there's too much riding on this. Rice couldn't quite keep the skepticism out of his expression, and in some ways, Firestein didn't blame him. If Empress Elizabeth's personal yacht hit the Iota Wall, it was unlikely there'd be any survivors. But Rice hadn't been party to Firestein's sickbay conversation. He didn't understand the implications, the reason Firestein was determined to set a new record for the Beowulf Sol run. He was going to shave every second he could off that passage, and if that meant hazarding his command, so be it. There were some people you didn't fail, and Stephen Firestein was not going to be the one who failed this time. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a Bengal tiger-colored Cadillac DeVille with peacock feather-lined seats and a pink siren on top. And gratitude and praise for Eric Flint and Griffin Barber, authors of 1637 The Peacock Throne. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.